and welcome to the Pandemic Puppy Podcast, brought to you by Journey Dog Training and the Pandemic Puppy Raising Facebook Group. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I'm super excited to be here talking about adventure puppies with Amber Kwan. We are covering puppy raising right from the start in this podcast, and today we're digging into one of my favorite topics, which is helping raise our puppies to be awesome little adventure companions. So Amber is the owner and head trainer of Summit Dog Training in Fort Collins, Colorado. She focuses on getting her clients out doing awesome adventures with their dogs and with her own dogs. She enjoys hiking, backpacking, camping, paddleboarding, and brewery visits. Her current adventure buddy is Jameson the Papillon, who is learning how to be a great hiking and camping companion. And he is just the cutest. Um, and uh, yeah, as, as many of our listeners probably know, I, living in Montana, also do quite a bit of adventure mm-hmm. prep. But um so I'm just really excited to get to talk about talk about this and think about what we're doing um, to make sure that our puppies grow up to be awesome little adventure dogs. Um, yeah. Before we get started, Amber, um, I just want to, we've got a couple little housekeeping things to take care of. We don't have any new reviews to highlight today. So if you're listening to this and you think that we should have a review to highlight because we find them highly reinforcing, go ahead and review the podcast over in the Apple Podcast Store. Makes my day every time. And you can also support this podcast by joining our Patreon, which is at patreon.com slash pandemic puppy. And for as little as $3 a month, you support the podcast and get perks like submitting questions for us to tackle at the end of each episode. Again, you can sign up for that over at patreon.com slash pandemic puppy. And it's just three bucks. So <laughs> it's a pretty good deal in my opinion. Yeah. All right. So Amber, welcome to the podcast. Why don't you start out by just... Uh, yeah, telling us a little bit about what you and Jameson have been up to. It's a Monday. Did you guys do anything fun over the weekend? Yeah, we actually had a really um, awesome and busy week last week of adventuring. Uh, so I got to go and uh, hang out at my uh, dear friend's house uh, up in the mountains, a little bit further than uh, where I live. And we spent the week uh, hiking every day. Uh, she has a lot of access to off-leash areas um, pretty close to her house. So uh, Jamie mm-hmm. and his buddy, Fen, the German Shepherd, got to just race around uh, in the mountains every day. And uh, that was a really nice way to mix it up from, um, you know, us only getting to go once or twice a week here, uh, being a little bit further away. It was really nice to be up in the in the hills a little bit further. And Jamie really is still recovering, I think, <laughs> from um, <laughs> hiking every single day last week. And then we, we hiked oh, on Saturday awesome. as well. We got back and, and went on another off-leash hike uh, up in the mountains on Saturday with another friend and her dog. So Jamie's had quite the busy adventuring schedule this past week. Yeah. Lucky guy. (laughs) That sounds like a lot of fun. Oh, to be a dog. So (laughs) yeah. Yeah. So I think, why don't we kind of start out um, with like the basics of something that you can start taking care of even before your puppy is fully ready for adventures is thinking about gear and, you know, everything from backpacks, which might be helpful for carrying tired, tired pups, Mm -hmm tyrant pups um <laughs> to you know do we do we want to do booties do we have anything else in mind um i feel like a lot of times this is kind of where people want to start and we can talk about you know what you do use and then maybe what we don't yeah. use or what um yeah absolutely what isn't necessarily so essential gear uh as far as i'm concerned for 
preparing our puppies for success are um, a leash and a harness. Uh, generally, I mm-hmm. also um, typically use a long line, fifteen feet ish, mm-hmm. for uh, more of our outdoor adventures like our hiking and our uh, camping and our paddleboarding. Something that gives the puppy a little bit more freedom of movement, ability to move at their own pace. So that's really important to me. I use a, generally for young puppies, I'm going to use a rear clip harness, something that fastens on the back of them rather than the front, primarily um, because it keeps the leash up and out of their way versus in front of them where they can get Mm -hmm. tangled and or start to play tug of war with the leash, all of those fun puppy games. So something that that connects to the back can be uh, helpful there, but also we want to make sure that it's a harness that's well fitted and doesn't restrict a ton of movement so that puppies can, can move and, um, manipulate their legs in a way that's kind of healthy Mm -hmm. and intentional versus, you know, stumbling around. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. So I think, you know, the big thing for, for me, uh, and it sounds like you as well is there's actually less gear involved in most of this than people think. Um, you know, if I'm stand-up paddleboarding or something like that, then yeah, we'll get a life jacket. If we're camping, I might bring a jacket or something for an overnight trip. But overall, um, yeah, I mean, my puppy has a back clip harness and a long yep. line, and that's about <laughs> all we need in most situations. Yeah. Um, and I do know, you know, for smaller puppies or younger puppies, we might want to think about a backpack. Do you have any recommendations? Just especially because you, Jamie's so little, yes. um, you probably have more of that experience than I do as a border collie owner. <laughs> right. So I've tried out several different backpack and carrying devices. And ultimately my favorite is the Kurgo G train backpack. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that maybe we can link it in the show notes or something so yeah, that uh, I can <laughs> help people find it that way. But one of the reasons I really like this one is it uh, gives the puppy lots of support along the bottom. It's a little bit more uh, helps the puppy kind of sit upright versus uh, being kind of extended. Some of the other backpacks require the puppy to be more um, like almost straight up and down in the way that they're strapped into the backpack. And this G-Train backpack has room for puppy to sit more naturally and stick their head out of the backpack. So it's, I find mm-hmm. it's a little bit more comfortable. Um, I've also used a sling uh, for Jamie when he was really little and he much prefers the backpack. It's a little bit stable or less bouncy. Uh, he can see better. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I've kind of landed on for him as we were getting started with our hiking, he spent, I would say, probably 85% of the adventure in the backpack when he was really little. And now we've kind of um, just limited our backpack use to our really long hikes, like if we're going for 12 miles or or something like that, that he's just physically not able to go that far. But now that he's over a year age and also has more stamina, we've kind of phased out uh, the use of that mm-hmm. as extensively, but when we when he was a little guy, that was quite uh, a different ratio. He was much more yeah. um, frequently in the backpack just because his little legs couldn't take him that far. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know with Niffler because Niffler came home I think December twentieth or twenty first. Um, and so in Montana, that means a lot of snow and a lot of cold. So I didn't get a dog specific backpack, but I kind of put my down jacket in the bottom of my 40 liter pack and kind of made it into a sling sort of thing. It definitely wasn't super comfortable for him, but kind of given my financial situation Mm -hmm. and, uh, the fact that he was going to grow out of it really quickly and he won't be needing it, um, going forward, I don't think. 
um, that made sense. And there's nothing wrong with doing something like right. that as long as you can kind of keep your puppy comfy in it. And we would do a lot of like 20 minutes of him walking, 20 mm-hmm. minutes of him being carried back and forth. And just, you know, if we knew that it was going to be something that was really, really hard for him, we just wouldn't bring right. him. Well, and uh, definitely I like that you brought up like your packing, your uh, backpacking backpack could be modified for carrying a puppy. Uh, Cause that's, mm-hmm. I definitely did that with Jamie on our, some of our backpacking treks when we, we hiked in, we camped and then we did a day hike to a glacier from there. And I, so I didn't bring mm-hmm. my dog specific backpack on that trip because I had my packing pack yeah. on my back. So I just, I emptied it all the gear, left that at the base camp and put Jamie in and, uh, patted his, uh, his underneath him with some coats and clothes and he was ready to go. So you could definitely make yeah. shift some things. I think the important thing, especially when we're considering our large breed puppies is to make sure that we're uh, managing their distance to what's an appropriate level for their development and their stamina and their, mm-hmm. um, and we're not pushing them past that length of time just because they look like they could keep going. We're still being mindful about how long we're expecting them to run and hike for and being willing to supplement with a boost now and then. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And we're going to have, we've got an upcoming episode with a, um, a sports rehab vet kind of all about kind of making sure that we're taking care of our puppies joints as we're yes. exercising them and really recognizing that fatigue um, when it does come about and yeah, how to deal with that. Cause that's, that's really tricky. But again, so I think the biggest thing that we're really saying with gear is that you don't need all that much of mm-hmm. it. Um, so what are we thinking about then other than gear? You know, um, I know you have some principles of successful adventures. So what are we thinking about as far as making sure that our puppy is ready to go out and enjoy the great outdoors with us? Yeah. So I start thinking about any type of adventure environment, thinking, how can I set my puppy up for success? First, using a little bit of management to make sure that they're going to choose the behavior that I like, that they're, they're going to uh, not practice behaviors that I don't like. And this will vary depending on the puppy and what your puppy's kind of default mm-hmm. is or expectations of that environment are. But for example, when we're going out hiking for the very first time, I really want my puppy to start with a default expectation that I am the center of their universe, even when we're out on the hiking trail. Mm -hmm. And so if we go out for our very first hike and we unclip the leash and they see dog friends and they see human friends and they get to run up to everyone and say hi to everyone Mm -hmm. and they get to chase the birds out of the brush and all of this, that from the very first adventure can be kind of emphasizing the wrong behaviors or the behaviors that I don't want to be Mm -hmm. emphasized. And so I will start with thinking, okay, on our first few adventures, we're going to manage those interactions to make sure that the behaviors that I want are the ones that are happening. So things like my puppy will stay on a leash for um, a large portion of our first adventures, or I'm going to go in an environment where I don't expect to see a lot of other people or dogs, if I'm going to practice off leash, I'm going to set up that environment as much as I can control picking a a deserted trail or going on a certain time of the day when there's not as many people or a certain time of the week, picking those environments Mm -hmm. carefully so that I can get the behavior that I want so that I can reward that behavior when it happens so that the next time Mm -hmm. I could add in a little bit of difficulty in my expectations for my puppy, but I'm not 
automatically going out there and expecting my puppy to stick close to me without any backup um, or intentional environmental setup on my my part. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And um, yeah, it's definitely um, something that I've been running into with Sniffler uh, lately is kind of trying to figure out, uh, yeah, how to balance layering and some of these distractions. And you can't always predict everything. And that's that's okay. Um, so what about kind of assessing confidence for our puppies yeah. as far as like different activities, um, where where they might kind of enjoy going versus maybe where it makes sense to leave them behind or how to build confidence, you know, however you want to take that. Right. Um, well, that yeah, and in those kind of approaches initially to different types of adventures, I'm always going to be looking for what the puppy's behavior is telling me. So are they telling me that this environment is really cool and they're ready to go? Are we seeing a lot of kind of tail up, ears up, uh, enthusiastic walking through the environment, enthusiastic, you know, embracing whatever sounds and sights and uh, things that they encounter? Or, or are we seeing any sort of um, hesitant behavior, maybe some lower tail carriage or some slower walking, a little bit more scanning, or perhaps um, getting kind of fixated or worried, um, sucked into watching a particular trigger that they see. Uh, I'm going to be just kind of watching for my puppy's behavior to tell me how they're feeling about that certain environment and mm-hmm. then proceed either on pace with what I was planning or slowing down my introduction and breaking it down further. I like to use uh, the brewery environment for an example, because I do a lot of uh, mm-hmm. brewery dog prep with my students and teaching teaching people how to help their dogs be great brewery dogs. And I often in the breweries encounter people who've brought young puppies and have just kind of thrown them into the middle of that environment and the puppies are demonstrating behaviors that indicate they are not very comfortable with being in that situation. We're seeing kind of either some moving away or seeking to get away from the stimuli. We're seeing kind of a, maybe a frantic overexcitement uh, over arousal mm-hmm. behaviors where the puppy just can't settle or can't sit still um, or can't just look at what's happening but needs to be moving and and is maybe some more frenetic movements there. And in those cases, I would you know encourage those um, puppy owners to take a step back, to go and sit on the edge of the brewery to let our puppies kind of just have a stationary moment uh, at, at the outskirts of the environment and then assess from there whether our puppy is uh, comfortable at that level or needs to maybe leave and go home and come back another day and try it at, at mm-hmm. a, a, lever, a lesser uh, level of difficulty maybe on a <laughs> a Wednesday at 2 p.m. instead of a Saturday at uh, noon um, type of Mm -hmm. difference here. So we really want to be thinking about like, what is our dog's baseline confidence when they are encountering new things? And then each individual thing might have different aspects uh, of difficulty Mm -hmm. that might affect our, our puppy's baseline confidence in different ways. Yeah, yeah, that definitely makes sense. And I know I had um, Niffler was out at Cabela's with me yesterday. Um, as our listeners will know from previous episodes, we've been working on some stranger danger yeah. um, stuff. And um, yeah, we we had um, he had a bit of a moment where someone uh, he, kids are really really challenging for him right now. 
And um, I wasn't expecting so many kids to be at Camillus, <laughs> which I learned a thing. Yep. Um, and yeah, we, we had a moment where he got a little spooked by a kid and then he like backed up into a display and had a sea turtle fall on his head, like a stuffed sea oh, turtle. No. Um, <laughs> it was just like one of those like comedy of errors yeah. sorts of things. So yeah, and then we like backed up. We went into the, the we were in like the fishing section for yep. a little bit. <laughs> for whatever reason, there weren't many people there. And we did a little bit of pattern feeding, which is like a Leslie mm-hmm. McDivitt pattern game. So just feeding on my left and then my right. Yeah. left am i right and we just kind of did that until he wasn't snatchy with the treats anymore and he seemed calmer and then we kind of took the shortest line from there to the door to get out um and in that particular case because of where i was in the store it actually made more sense to try to like soothe before just getting right. out um versus if we'd been closer to the door i might have just left right away right. but just because of where we were and that's you know those are always judgment calls um And, you know, the tricky thing with something like a stand-up paddleboard or hiking or backpacking is you might not have as much access to being able to exit um, really quickly and gracefully. And I think that's something that we can think about as we're taking our puppies out is, okay, so maybe the first time we go stand-up paddleboarding, I'm not planning on going with my friends and being out all day. I'm going to just take my dog and we're going to plan on spending 20 minutes on the beach five minutes in the water and then going home. Yes. Quality <laughs> um, over quantity is a key mm-hmm. mantra that I encourage my puppy students to think about. Uh, we want this experience to leave our puppies wanting more. Uh, and so that means often like cutting it short while they're still having fun. And while it's still emphasizing like good positive experiences before they have said like, you know what, I'm shut down and I can't handle this anymore. Um, and so mm-hmm. planning some of those shorter adventures, especially in the early stages as you're assessing your puppy's confidence, I think is really important and really key. And in some ways we can set yeah. up elements of those adventures at home too, before you even have to invest the time in making that drive. You know, if you have a stand up paddleboard that you take out, blow it up in your living room or put it, if it's not a blow up one, just put it down on the the floor in your living room and prop it up with some blankets or some quilts uh, so that it doesn't move and let your puppy kind of experiment with it and play with it, play on it uh, before you even go to the the reservoir or the lake for the first time so that your puppy is Mm -hmm. thinking, oh, right, I've seen this before. I know what to do. Yeah, we stand on this. Yeah, and even like I know – I usually recommend sleeping in a tent in mm-hmm. your backyard, if at all possible, yeah. before you go out and you're, you know, six hours away from home <laughs> for Memorial Day weekend yes. or something. And even with Niffler, he hasn't slept in a tent yet. Um, but I know that sleeping, we've slept at a variety of different friends' places. We've rented cabins with friends. So he's co-slept with a variety of people. Um and we've slept in a sprinter van yeah. as well. So I just, you know, thinking about like, okay, if your puppy has a really hard time settling when you spend the night at your grandparents' house or your friend's house yeah. or, you know, at a cabin or whatever, knowing that a situation that's even weirder, like a tent, is likely to be harder yeah. than that. So even if, you know, you don't have the the ability to set up a tent anywhere yeah. um, nearby to practice, like just doing something and making sure that your puppy knows how to sleep somewhere other than the exact same place that they've been sleeping their whole lives, most likely. Yeah, absolutely. Making um, different is normal. Making novelty Mm -hmm. and variety and and different things happening around and to them or uh, expecting them to have those behaviors, those good behaviors that we want, like sleeping calmly uh, teaching them that they can do that in a variety of different locations is really helpful. 
Yeah, definitely. So let's talk about kind of observe and learns mm -hmm. as a way to kind of as a foundation for adventure success. So let's talk about what that is and then how it actually applies here, because it's not it might not necessarily seem obvious to listeners at, at first glance. Yeah. So the observe and learn kind of framework is is basically what I just said uh, of teaching novel is normal, teaching our puppies that mm. different things happen in the environment and they are present. They can, uh, the puppy can look and watch and then move on or just sit and be calm. So I really like introducing this concept as uh, part of our socialization regimen for uh, our puppies. Mm -hmm. And this could look as simple as like going to the grocery store and parking at the end of the parking lot and sitting in your car and letting your puppy sit in the seat beside you and just kind of look out the window and say, different things happen, uh, in the, um, mm -hmm. in the parking lot. I did this with my puppy this morning. Uh, we were waiting outside for our vet visit and we're parked in a line of cars waiting for our, um, our technician to come out and get him. And he's just sitting on my lap and there's other people coming and going, other dogs coming and going from their cars. And, uh, he's getting rewarded occasionally for watching those things calmly, but otherwise just standing on for him he's standing because he otherwise he can't see but um standing on the <laughs> the armrest of the chair um the the car seat and just watching and i want my puppies to know that whatever is happening in the environment whatever is changing in the environment it's okay it's normal so that's uh, really what mm -hmm. the observe and learn framework is um is seeking to accomplish yeah, definitely. And I love the idea, you know, especially with, you know, if your puppy's not fully vaccinated and you're nervous about having them on the ground, just, you know, pulling up to a trailhead or a city park or something and having them in the in the back of your car and just sitting there and feeding. And we would do, we'd take Niffler out and just put a blanket down. Um, and we were doing track workouts where my, my now ex-boyfriend and I would, he would run a lap and I would sit with the dog for a little bit. And then I would run a lap and he would sit with the dog. And then, you know, Niffler was getting to see strollers yeah. and dogs and, um, not where we were there, but um, other places we've been able to see horseback riders and all of these different things yeah. that, you know, making sure he was exposed to them at a nice distance and just learning that they didn't matter much to him yeah. before we run into them, like, on a trail. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, one of the other things that I've found with Niffler um, that's been really helpful, and I, again, I mentioned this in our Stranger Danger episode, um, is I've been really trying to strategically take him to hiking trails and areas that are really open, like kind of grassy hillside sort of places where I can really see, you know, wildlife, people, horseback riders, dogs, whatever it is that's coming our way. And I can kind of manage that effectively, whether it's because Niffler's been dragging a long line and I'm going to call him so I can pick it up or anything like that. And I can actually see it and call him before he's gotten so excited about it or freaked out by it that he's not going to respond to me. Because I, we've had a couple instances where um, in Missoula here, um, we have most of our trails are either like, it's like Ponderosa forests, um, which aren't that thick. We don't have a ton of under undergrowth, which is kind of nice, but still um, Ponderosa, you know, it's, it's, it's forested. Um, and in some places it can be really dense, especially as you get into the river bottoms. Um, or it's like big grassy open hillsides, you know, giant big sky country sort of stuff for Montana. Um, and I've found the, those like forested areas were much, much more likely to have him get surprised by something and get freaked out by it. Or um, even just, you know, if it's just him like running up and jumping on another dog's head or something <laughs> that, you know, I wasn't prepared right. for and uh, <laughs> didn't, didn't see in time to call him back. Um, 
and and save their their dog from being assaulted by my puppy <laughs> and my puppy from eventually being told off by some stranger's dog right. um you know we i don't need other people's dogs to have to learn uh teach him that lesson right. that's not that's not fair yeah. to them so absolutely yeah, so let's see, what else did we have to talk about? Let's talk about off-leash foundation work, because I think that's when people think adventures, that's like the quintessential is like having your dog off-leash and like yep. running the trails or hiking or whatever it is. What, what I think last time, so this is our second time recording this podcast. <laughs> um, last time what we did is we each took a skill and we kind of explained what it was, how we taught it, and then the other one went. And I, I think that was really fun. Yep. So let's try that again so that our listeners actually get to hear sure. it. Um, so why don't you start with whatever you think one of your first skills for off-leash foundations Yeah, so uh, honestly, my first foundation skill for off-leash work is the ability to look at distractions without needing to touch them. I say look, but don't touch, um, is, is the foundation mm -hmm. skill. Uh, and that's just kind of the funny phrase that I use, uh, to describe it. Look, but don't touch, um, cause our puppies love to touch and dive into <laughs> all sorts of situations. And I want to teach them that they can see something at a distance and that we don't always run up and rush on them. So this builds on our observe and learn type skill where, you know, there's mm -hmm. a observe and learn. The objective is just the puppy just chills and and I understands that there's stuff in the environment. The look but don't touch, mm -hmm. I'm looking for one step further of the puppy looks at whatever it is and then can turn and return to me um, or turn and come and collect a treat for me or come and get some other engagement praise or um, you know a toy toss, a uh, positive engagement for me, whatever it is. I want the dog um, or the puppy starting to learn like I see something and then I get immediate engagement from my human back at them. And this mm -hmm. is something I start building even before I put in any sort of recall cue, like come or here. I just start rewarding my puppy for acknowledging that there's something in the environment. And I, I mark when they look towards whatever it is and then reward back at me. So if my puppy looks at a dog that is a football field away, I'm going to say, good boy. And he's going to come running back to me and get my, get his treat from, from me. And so we're just kind of creating this expectation that when we see other dogs and other people or other things in the environment, that is already a cue, even before I say come or before I say this way or, or not, because I really want the dog that starts to think for themselves in those situations and, and thinks mm -hmm. I see something coming down the trail. Um, I should turn around and come back automatically. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I know kind of on that thread, I think my biggest thing that I started for, um, off leash work is, and, and this starts in your home is, you know, with things like smart times 50, which is that C mark and reward training, which we'll link to in the show notes. We've mentioned a couple times and it's just rewarding your puppy whenever you see them doing something you like. Um, in that thread, you know, as soon as I was taking Niffler out, Niffler was going on little, little teeny tiny baby off leash hikes from day one, just cause I'm really lucky with where I live. Um, you know, every time he buzzed past me or looked up at me or anything like that, he got reinforced for it. So just really, really building that check-in skill. And um, it helps keep them a lot closer when you are kind of ped dispensing <laughs> treats. And at some point, I will wean him down. But honestly, I've been kind of trying to think about starting to wean things down as, as he's been getting a little bit older and he's getting better at it. But 
simultaneously we're hitting teenagerhood he's six months old now and i'm actually finding that i'm ramping back up and i'm actually probably reinforcing as much now as i was when he was 10 weeks old if not more because he is much more interested in the environment right now much more interested in birds yeah. <laughs> are the current <laughs> obsession um so you know check-ins and again you know if i think those are they're very similar skills because what we're trying to do is teach the dog to stick around and check in with us on their own and understand how to stay close on their own because recall is great but if you have to call your dog and police their movements at all times anyway even if your dog listens to you right away it's still just a frustrating experience and to have your dog choosing and understanding to stay close and check in with you is just it's so much easier yes we we have this foundational focus exercise that we work on in our classes and uh our students are always asking like, okay, do I, what do I say here? Do I say my dog's name? Do I uh, say come, whatever it is. And I always give out this rule of thumb of saying, okay, we want to practice 80% of the time, um, our focus skills and exercise 80% of the time where you are going to reward our dogs and look for that offered check-in without any cue. Mm -hmm. And then 20% of the time I practice with those cues because we do want those cues to be really, Mm -hmm. really strong and really resilient to Mm -hmm. a lot of things. But I also really want the dog knowing that offering to check in with me and offering to come back and offering to stay close of their own volition, that's what makes a, a hike peaceful to me. Um, yeah. And to have your dog kind of be able to learn, that it's partially their responsibility to keep tabs on you. I know one of the games I've been playing with Niffler lately is if he disappears around the bend, I will go off trail in a random direction and it's his job to come find me. And that's been really a helping build a lot of enthusiasm into recall (laughs) and B a lot of times I'm not even calling him and it's just really kind of helping him learn the lesson of like, Hey, you can't just rush ahead and assume I'm going to catch up. Like it is partially your responsibility to keep tabs on me because sometimes I disappear into the woods. (laughs) (laughs) You got to keep an eye on you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not trustworthy. So it's his job to keep track of where I am. Um, And obviously, you know, I wouldn't try that uh, if there was any, well, I mean, there's always a risk where you're, anytime you are off leash, there is a risk, which is something that I think we should say. Um, But I'm I'm being strategic about when I'm playing that game, I guess I'll say. Yes, with Jamie, I have uh, been, especially when we hike, when he's the only dog, I Mm -hmm. have been really kind of intentional about like working on that really close proximity because he is so small and there is a higher risk for him being off leash. And so when I'm taking that risk, I am also going to be doing things to mitigate those circumstances as much as I can. And for him, what we're, we're working on a lot is I often hike with my partner and we we hike spread out about maybe 20 to 30 feet and we're working on Jamie like being in between us so we'll we'll play mm-hmm. recall games down the trail where he goes um mm-hmm. up to Charlie and then comes back to me and uh, we're rewarding him for offering those behaviors but also when we call him and just trying to make it um really really exciting and highly rewarding to stay right between us rather than running off in front of us too much. Like with, with Rue, my last dog, I would let him run up the trail 50 um, yards or so. And then he'd turn and run back to me. And we, we had a great time Mm -hmm. that way, but that's just not something I'm comfortable with for Jamie 
um, because of yeah, because he's what like eight, eight pounds? pounds. Yes. <laughs> yeah, versus Rue, who was probably forty-five, fifty, yeah, exactly. And yeah. Rue had yeah. uh, just a a set of behaviors where I knew that if something was wrong, I was going to hear about it. <laughs> and um, <laughs> Jamie, I think if something was wrong, I just would. <laughs> would not know where he was or something like that. So I am just, mm-hmm. uh, being, you know, being a little bit different in the way I approach it with my small yeah. dog, but also, which I think is smart. Yeah. 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 But also it's, I value it's different. I mean, it's one of the, ahead, I was just going to say, I value off leash time so much that we're just figuring yeah. out the way that we can do it safely and, um, successfully. With yeah. Him. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that gives me pause when I think about getting a Papillon <laughs> or another kind of toy breed yeah. is the off-leash mm-hmm. factor. And um, before we go on to kind of our next off-leash readiness skill, I do have another piece of equipment, actually, oh, yeah. um, which is quite a bit more expensive and not something that I would necessarily recommend for a puppy, but I do actually have a Garmin Astro GPS mm-hmm. collar that I absolutely love. They are pricey, like $600 plus, I think. Um, but it is a full on handheld, you get a handheld GPS unit. You can track where your dog is, whether your dog is moving towards you or away from you, whether they're sitting or, uh, it keeps telling me that he's on point cause it's made for bird dogs <laughs> um, <laughs> and he's probably just sniffing some pee or something. Um, it's cool. You know, you can see where your dog went. You can start, you can track things. I use it all the time for my work as a conservation dog handler, but it's also just a huge piece of mind thing for me with Barley. Um, and uh, yeah, I use it really regularly again in Montana. It's just like there are other cheaper options that may work off cell towers or Bluetooth. But here in Montana, neither one of those is a viable option for me. Um, and the, the Garmin Astro will work, I think, up to nine miles of distance. So if something were to happen and he were to take off, which has never happened, mm-hmm. knock on wood, um, I have some sort of extra safety. And as soon as Niffler... Um, I think this summer I'm going to be getting Niffler an extra collar. And the collars are actually the cheaper part. It's the handheld that's really expensive, and the handheld can pair with multiple collars. Um, so I will be getting Niffler one of those as well. Um, and we'll link to that again. So it's the Garmin Astro. And again, they are very expensive, but if you do spend a lot of time off-leash hiking, um, the peace of mind I've mm-hmm. gotten out of it is incredible. There have been a lot of times where, you know, Barley might only be out of sight for like a minute mm-hmm. or two, but I can just pull up my thing, my my handheld and see that he's 40 meters away from me and closing or 150 meters away from me and closing. But I know he's coming. And even though he hikes with a bear, a bear bell, and he often has a visibility vest on and and if it's dusky, we always have a light. Mm-hmm. You know, I have, I guess I do have a lot of other gear. Yes. Uh, I lied. <laughs> um, but but I, I don't have that for my right. puppy um, yet. Um, but, um, so we have all that extra safety gear, but still, if he's even just 30 meters away from me, and a lot of times what I'll find is I'll look at the map and he's traveling parallel to the trail. He's just 30 meters away down in the river or something, um, instead, but I can't see him. And even with a bear bell on, I can't hear him. So it's just, it's a huge piece of mind thing because I would spend a lot of time hollering after him when he's already, he is on his way back from a recall or something. Um, so I really, really like that, um, that tool. And, um, I like the Astro doesn't have a shock function as well, which I like kind of putting my money there. Um, and, uh, while I think shock colors are really popular for a lot of off-leash stuff, you'll notice that Amber and I have not recommended them. I actually had a, an encounter just last week with an off-leash dog, um, 
that was not listening to its owner's recall and they were shocking the dog as the dog was interacting with barley and niffler and it was just nothing happened mm -hmm. luckily but it was one of those situations where i was just watching you know the owners thought they were shocking the dog for not listening to them and it would have been very easy for that dog to think that he was being shocked for approaching my puppy um and it would have been very easy for that to escalate into a fight or an attack and luckily it didn't but it's just yeah ugh, made me very very nervous yeah understandably okay so yeah well, that was a bit of a tangent but um so what other skills do you uh, do you like kind of starting off with your puppies yeah. or even you know as we're thinking like a teenager mm -hmm. who's a little bit more advanced towards off-leash the skills? next uh skill that i like to teach is a kind of default to pulling over and stopping and waiting on the side of the trail when something else is approaching and or passing us. So I mm -hmm. start teaching this early, early on with even, you know, young puppies on their first trail adventures. Someone else is coming down the trail. Mm -hmm. We find a spot to pull off. We make it a cookie party. And then as soon as the person passes, I say, okay, all done. And we continue walking up the trail. So I like to set that expectation really early on. When I'm out on the trail, I don't really want it to be a free-for-all greet everyone friends coming down the trail mm -hmm. awesome we're excited you know unless I've released my dog to go say hi after I've kind of um, determined that it's a safe situ situation and that it's a situation that would be welcome from the person approaching then I'm okay with releasing the dog to go say hello but as a default and a normal expectation for my puppies I really like building in early on that people on the trail are just there and they're just, you know, another tree in the forest, basically. We wait, mm -hmm. they pass us by, and then we keep going. And uh, that way, it will save us a lot of hassle later on, teaching our puppies um, that already have this kind of default self-control expectation. So a lot of rewards on the side of the trail. With young puppies, I don't enforce a sit or a down stay. That's certainly something we could add in. Once the puppy really knows those skills confidently in other environments, we could certainly ask for a sit or an up on a log or something like that. But at first, it's just we pull mm -hmm. over, we find cookies in the grass, we have a good time, people walk by, then we get to keep going. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I think, and our, our next one is also quite similar, and it's kind of a wait or a stop cue. Mm -hmm. um, I use two different ones, so I have a wait that's kind of just a pause. Um, and I honestly haven't really trained that in a very particular way with either of my dogs. I will just kind of say wait. And then, you know, because I've said something, they stop <laughs> to ask what's going yeah. on. And then I say free and that, and I've never really rewarded it much with food or toys or anything. It's just kind of been built in really naturally. And that's worked well for us so far. Um, and then our stop is much more of a formal cue. And we've taught that as kind of an emergency down. I use a down with my dogs instead of a sit or a stand. Um, they're border collies. So lying down and creeping around comes very naturally to them. And I find, um, I just, I haven't taught stand much. I think a, a stop stand would make a lot of mm -hmm. sense. Um, and I find sit can just be a little bit challenging for my border collies coming, like going from a, a being in motion to sit mm -hmm. um, seems a little bit harder physically yeah. than going into a down. Anyway, um, and I teach that as, you know, it's their down cue. We practice at a distance mm -hmm. and then out of motion. Um, so it's it's a pretty high level behavior and Niffler um, at six months has not even started learning it yet. Um, but I really like that for my older dog, Barley, as something that we can pull out of our, our back pocket because we've had cases where um, 
yeah, this happened a lot um, in Costa Rica. Actually, we we lived on this little um, beach town, and um, there they did like sunset horseback rides um, every evening for the tourists. And I would realize that um, the horses were about to move in between Barley and I as he was hiking. And you know, on a beach, so it was I I let him range pretty far. Um, so rather than recalling him to me or risk him deciding to check in with me on my on his own, I would use this like emergency stop cue to get him to stop and lie down and stay put um, versus, you know, him doing anything dumb around horses <laughs> that are carrying gringos on their backs. Right. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And, and again, it is a pretty advanced thing that I think most of our puppies, if your puppy can't lie down the first time you ask them when you're 10 feet away from them facing a wall, they're probably not really ready to start putting this into use um, on the trail. Right. But we can start, and I'll link to, we've got a game on Journey Dog Training called Can You Listen When? That's a, it's kind of a proofing game of how to layer in distractions and distance and all these different things for your dog. Um, and I think that would be a really good place to start um, and just kind of playing around with different sorts of distractions as you're getting ready to be able to use it in an emergency situation out on a trail. Absolutely. I uh, really like using a high value toy to teach this concept of stopping um, out of motion or um, mm -hmm. pausing out of motion, because then you get to kind of reinforce that decision with motion, which can often be like highly reinforcing for our dogs that were less inclined to stop in the first place. So, you know, starting pretty close to the dog and giving my weight cue or my down cue or whatever cue it is we've decided um, to, to cue that position. And then when I get that little um, freeze, or if I've asked for a down, if I get the down, immediately responding with a release to go play with a toy or a release to go play tug or something um, really exciting so that the dog is learning that that stop should happen quickly, but is not the end of the fun or end of the game. Um, mm -hmm. And I've, I found that to be really helpful, um, particularly for Jamie as he's um, particularly for Jamie as he is uh, learning those concepts. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Do we have anything else as far as, I mean, as far as kind of basic off-leash foundation work, I know we could go into like directionals and turnarounds or U-turns uh, or anything. Um, maybe maybe we do. I, do you want to touch on I those we before we kind, kind of, of move on? summarize all of that by saying we have, maybe we want to make a distinction for our puppies between a recall cue and a let's go this way or let's keep moving this way cue. So I use, um, if I want my puppy to come all the way back to me, I use one specific word and that's what I'm going to reinforce. If I use this way or let's go, I just generally mean like an encouragement for my puppy to keep running along with me or to turn and move in a different direction. And if I see kind of that movement towards me, I will, you know, praise and get excited and let them keep running on the trail. And so I think having that distinction as we're working with our puppies um, is important. If you call your puppy back mm -hmm. to you and they just kind of move in your direction, but don't come all the way to you, that's something that we want to figure out, okay, what kept them from coming to you? Was it a lack of you know, understanding of what you're looking for? Was it a distraction along the way? Um, was it too, too high of a criteria? Uh, and how can we make sure that when we say come or when 
we say hear or in my my recall cue is touch for my puppy coming and touching his nose in my hand. That's my recall cue. And if Mm -hmm. I say touch, I want to see that behavior get completed before my dog moves on. And so I also am going to set up some intentional management where if my puppy comes halfway and then gets distracted, I'm going to go closer. I'm going to get their attention. I'm going to ask them to finish the behavior. And then I might think, okay, do we need to do a few more repetitions at an easier level before I turn them Mm -hmm. loose again? Um, And that's really important to me that we're seeing that behavior get finished versus we say touch puppy gets close enough to us and then wanders off and we say, eh, close enough. They came back. Um, if I was looking for that level of behavior of just move in my direction, I might use a different word or a different cue that just meant let's go this way or um, or come closer or yeah. pop up up um, to get their attention, but where I wasn't expecting them to actually comp- complete that specific recall behavior. Definitely. Yeah. And I, I know I've got, yeah, we do, we do this way, which is kind of our U-turn mm-hmm. cue. And I teach that out on walks as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so just anytime we're about to do a 180, I just say this way and, and I don't necessarily reinforce it again. Mm-hmm. Like the reinforcement is sticking with me and coming along, which for most young puppies is going to work pretty well. And for most, a, a lot of our really popular herding and sporting mm-hmm. breeds, that's going to work pretty well. If you do have a breed that tends towards the more extreme end of the independent scale. So we're looking at you, you know, our, our primitive breeds, our Basenjis, our Northern breeds, our Huskies, our, some of our sight hounds, you might need to reinforce that a little bit more, but for most of our dogs kind of turning around and following us is going to be um, pretty reinforcing on its own. Um, especially if you kind of teach it first out on a walk. And then I also, I have a cue that I really like um, where I, it's, I taught it very similarly to my too far and I, or to my weight, which I think um, there's a chance that I could actually just use the same cue for both (laughs) of them. But because I speak English, I like them being separate. So, um, and that cue is too far and it functions basically as a, 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 like a pause and don't go further away from me sort of behavior and very similar to, to my weight. I have not reinforced it super generously. So sometimes my dogs will recall when I say too far, but I don't expect them to. Um, And it's, I I don't quite understand exactly how I've taught it, (laughs) um, but it works really well where I just, I notice as they're starting to take off, um, you know, and get a little bit too far away from me, I just kind of call out too far. They kind of look back at me, I praise them, and then we keep going. yeah, it seems. And like- again, like I, I may reinforce it if they do come all the way back to me, but I actually kind of want it to be distinct from my recall cue. So mm-hmm. a lot of times, if they come all the way back to me for it too far, I don't reinforce it. It seems like maybe the Does that makes sense. Yeah, it seems like maybe the reinforcement is coming from the like, okay, release now. Let's keep walking when you do get closer. Exactly. Um, which for a dog that loves, and I find a lot of times the times where I use too far is those times where you know the the head is down, the <laughs> tail is up, they're following a scent, yep. and they just have kind of forgotten where you are. <laughs> they just don't know. Right. I don't yell too far. Like God, Niffler took off after a pair of deer the other day. I let him out to go potty and didn't realize that we've got like fifteen mule deer and thirty five <laughs> turkeys that live in our on like our five acre property. It's a nightmare. Um, I didn't realize they were in the front yard. I usually look. I don't yell too far at that right. point. You know, at that point, I'm just watching him and fr- crossing my fingers that he doesn't go anywhere right. because yelling at him at that point is not going to help. Yeah. Um, he actually luckily stopped our fence line um, and nice. came back. But yeah, yeah, nice. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I, I, and I think that's always, that's something that, you know, it, it's always worth repeating when it comes to recalls is at those moments where, you know, <laughs> you do not have them. Yeah. Don't bother. Yeah. All you're doing is having your dog practice, not listening to you. Right. Just, it sucks. Yeah. Uh, I like, there's few feelings uh, in the dog world worse yeah. than watching your dog sprinting away from you at top yeah. speed, just being like, well, <laughs> I'll find you when I find right. you. Don't run into the highway, I right. guess. Um, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. it's a horrible feeling. Yeah. Um, and But yelling after your dog in that moment doesn't help. Right. And if you're going to use a recall cue eventually, do it in such a way that's like looking for that moment when maybe the dog has already um, picked up their head or already stopped at the fence line, then call back or modify the environment in some way, like go closer and then call back. And I think that mm-hmm. it's also important mm-hmm. to... Um, to draw the distinction between like, if you can trust your dog will come back in those cases, which for most of our puppies, not, not a non-starter at this point, but for our dogs that have been recalling to us for, you know, many years successfully, we are going to be able to more successfully call them away from wildlife or call them away from those types of situations. And so in those cases, a recall cue might not be, um, in vain. I have, I have absolutely not. Yeah. I've been able to call barley off in that exact situation. And sometimes I can call Niffler off Mm -hmm. in that situation. And I couldn't tell you exactly what it is, but I can tell in his body language when it's going to work and when it's not, you know, when it's kind of like a half hearted charge (laughs) after the deer versus when it's like, Oh no, he thinks he's going to catch him this time. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. And it's definitely our, our individual knowledge of our dogs and their demeanor and body language will help inform those decisions. Definitely. So we're going to take a quick break to hear about one of the sponsors of the podcast. And then when we come back, we've got two Patreon questions to cover. So we'll be right back. This podcast is supported by the Puppy Raising Blueprint course, which you can find at journeydogtraining.com slash blueprint. In this course, which is partnered between Journey Dog Training and Canine of Mine, I guide you through everything from common problem behaviors like biting and potty training to the humane hierarchy of dog training. It's always available on a self-study basis at journeydogtraining.com blueprint. As a new puppy owner, I know how often we're cleaning up. While there's no replacement for management, supervision, and training, Clean Carl's has my back for the times that I slip up and Diffler has an accident. Clean Carl's pet mess products get rid of stains and odors from dog poop and cat pee and everything in between without any added scents so your house won't smell like poop or cleaning products. Plus, they're safe to use around both pets and kids. Next time your furry friend has an accident, try Clean Carl's pet mess zapper and remover. Use the code JOURNEY10 and get 10% off your first order. Just head over to cleancarls.com and use code JOURNEY10 at checkout. All right. And we are back. So Amber actually has, I guess I lied a little bit. This isn't a Patreon question, but it's a perk of being one of the clients (laughs) of one of our guests. We have a a fun uh, adventure prep question from one of Amber's guests, uh, one of Amber's clients. Yeah. So my client uh, likes to go cross-country skiing with their Mm -hmm. 11-month-old border collie mix puppy. And uh, they are having a bit of a challenge with, uh, the puppy wanting to grab at the ski tips as they go along. Um, Mm -hmm. particularly when they get moving quickly, um, moving quickly down a hill or maybe when there's, um, the other situation that they brought up to me is when there's another 
person um, and another dog that the the my client's dog doesn't live with, but the other dog get also gets very excited, not in a biting the ski tips kind of way, but in a barking, um, you know, high arousal type of way when they are cross country skiing. And so the client has identified kind of moving quickly mm-hmm. and or being um, in the company of that higher arousal dog uh, as two triggers that cause this puppy to start to grab Mm -hmm. at the ski tips. And so I gave them a few suggestions. Um, We talked through some management, some training, um, but I know that you cross-country ski with your dogs and your border collies. And so I'm curious as to how you might kind of approach that situation. Yeah, definitely. Um, And, you know, the first caveat I'll give here is that I skate ski. Um, and I'm assuming that these people are classic skiing. So it is a slightly different kind of, um, motion that can make it a little bit easier or harder depending on the dog. So skate skiing, it's much more similar to like roller skiing, roller skating. Um, and you've got shorter skis and they're kind of off in a V, um, versus classic skiing, your skis are parallel. Um, it's what, if most people, like if you've just rented skis and gone to tool around in the woods, that's what you've done. Um, And so there's a couple different things. One is kind of thinking about the environment and what's causing this. So clearly it sounds like there's some amount of like fast movement or high arousal from the other dog. That sounds like it's a very similar route um, of just kind of being more excited, Mm -hmm. whether it's from speed or from the other dog. Um, So can we work on ways to help the puppy learn to manage their arousal? Um, You know, maybe with pattern feeding games, maybe with practicing um, games like Ready, Set, Down, which we'll link to in the show notes um, to help the puppy kind of learn to up and down regulate their own excitement. Maybe playing with like a flirt pole or something and helping the puppy learn to disengage from toys. Um, And then also, you know, uh, again, on kind of the environmental side of things is thinking about um, specifically like a lot of times I've noticed that dogs um, and Niffler is one of these dogs will go for ski tips more in powder where the ski tips are kind of playing peekaboo and coming up through the snow or not at various times. And that just makes it a lot more exciting. So potentially thinking about going to trails where that is less likely to be the case, or, you know, in Colorado, just picking the time of, uh, you know, whether the groomer has been out recently or any of those sorts of things that may help as well. Um, And then in the moment as well, um, I have had to do this with both of my border collies when I was first teaching them to cross country ski is I just gave each of them, a couple pretty minor verbal corrections, just kind of like a no or an uh uh-uh. If that hadn't worked right away, I would not have continued down that route, but just a little bit of verbal communication of like, hey, that's not acceptable. Um, That's not how we do this. And then giving them a cue, um, both of my dogs know like a let's go sort of cue, Um, and then getting them to run off ahead of me um, has helped a lot. And I've also found um, I'm a pretty fast cross-country skier. So this, again, may not work (laughs) for some of our other listeners. um, But I am generally going fast enough that if my dogs try to go for my ski tips, they are going to get skied over. Um, So it is a safety thing for me, which is part of the reason I'm willing to resort to that verbal punishment. But it also means, you know, Niffler has gotten kind of hit um, by my shins Mm -hmm. as he as he was learning not to bite at my my ski tips. And that's not something I would do intentionally. It's not part of the training plan, but also is the sort of thing where as he was learning not to cut in front of me while cross country skiing. If he got under my feet um, and it was his fault, I'm going to let him experience those consequences. Um, so, you know, it's it, it's funny how, um, because of kind of the specifics of cross-country skiing, you know, you've got gloves on, you've got poles in your hands, you're, um, 
you're out in the cold. Um, it is actually, it's one of those places that is just practically really challenging to do any treat-based training. Um, so I do find that the approach that I'm suggesting here sounds much, much more punishment-based than like 99.7 of the rest of my training. Um, but in my experience with my dogs, that has been like a, one or two events um, of relatively minor natural punishment that has been very effective. And if it weren't effective, then I would want to go back to the drawing board. Um, and I would guess your client may have already tried that just because, I mean, most of us, uh, I don't think we talk enough about how natural it is to use verbal corrections mm -hmm. and how we all kind of do that, <laughs> even if it's not part of our training right. plans. Yeah. Um, so I would imagine they've probably already tried that and I would imagine it's not working. Yeah, I think it's very, uh, yeah, very environmentally specific. So I think that perhaps uh, going back and looking at it from the whole picture, you know, that included um, is the way we've gone about it. And uh, I definitely, you know, since we recorded this uh, a couple of weeks ago and we're re-recording uh I had kind of gone back and, and we've revisited this topic in our lessons since then. It, uh, it seems like there has been a little bit of improvement, but also the snow is going away for the season. So we have a few pieces of our training plan um, that we're going to put into place for working on those arousal pieces over the summer. Um, mm -hmm. We're going to work on some um, biking um, practice, which is going to need some of those same skills, mm -hmm. um, over the summer and then be ready to revisit cross country skiing activities, um, yeah. next winter with hopefully, you know, a more mature puppy brain and also some um, yes. greater, um, arousal management skills under their belt. So, yeah, um, I, I would imagine, you know, working on things like leave it and getting the dog used to either running consistently at your side or consistently out front. Yeah. I prefer my dogs out front. Um, you know, and just all of those sorts of things would help quite a bit. Um, because honestly, in a lot of situations, if your dog has a good verbal leave it, you don't need to use like a verbal correction. They're kind of the same thing. Um, but, you know, leave it is more sanctioned in the positive reinforcement community. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, working on those leave it's and particularly with kind of exciting sorts of uh, things that could be construed as similar to skis or ski um, tips. Yeah. Tips. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Great, yeah, great it'll be exciting to hear more about it um, in the winter. Yes. If we might need an update in, uh, I don't know, February of 2022. Yes. <laughs> see how their season went. Um, I think that's a great idea. And then we do also, we have a Patreon question. So as we're wrapping up here, so it's from CH, and I'm just giving out the initials because I don't know whether or not I have permission to share the full name. And they say that they've got a six-month-old male border collie pup named Kipling, which is adorable. Kip and um, CH live in Johannesburg, South Africa, and they've started hiking more and more and have traveled and camped a bit too. He's experienced some small wildlife like mongoose and guinea fowl and some livestock like cattle, sheep, goats, chickens, and horses. He definitely has some interest in all of these animals. He stares, sometimes stops moving, uh, sometimes moving towards them, but he's um, CH has been always able to call them off, but she is terrified or they are terrified of wildlife encounters, especially larger herbivores that are abundant there. I, uh, I, yeah, the wildlife of South Africa uh, <laughs> is mind-blowing. <laughs> um, so CH tends to keep the dog on a long line or drag line in places they're worried about, but uh, is wondering if we have any tips for adventuring around wildlife to keep both the dogs and critters safe. Um, so I'm sure you've got some, and I know I've got a lot to say on this topic yes. as well. This could be its own podcast, but we'll try to keep it <laughs> um, brief. I always, it always has to come back to me for the safety of the dog and safety of the wildlife and the environment. And so if I'm hiking in an area where I am um, pretty sure that we're going to encounter some wildlife that could be potentially dangerous to my dog or to me, or um, me 
in the situation where my dog kind of exacerbates the situation and then um, redirects the an encounter onto me or could be harmful to the wildlife at play, I'm going to tend to um, rely on that management for longer until my dog has demonstrated that they can be able to behave the way that I want them to behave in the presence mm-hmm. of those situations. And so that would, for me, that would look like having a long line um, and mm-hmm. either having the dog drag it or me holding it at the end of the line, like with my pinky finger, like strength. Um, so I am working on cues independently of the long line. So I really want my dog Mm -hmm. to be able to come back to me before they feel that tension on the long line and to be able to walk and stick close to me with the line dragging behind them. And so until I'm seeing that level of uh, uh, response to the cues that the dog uh, that I'm giving to the dog, I would continue with that long line as management, um, as a backup, if the safety consequences were significant. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I have not yet been to Africa, let alone South Africa, but I've worked with some dogs that have worked in Africa. Um, and I think they're thinking about, you know, and this, the same goes here in the U.S. Um, or really anywhere in the world, is getting getting your head around as much as you can of the behavior of the animals that you're worried about. So, for example, here in Montana, our mama grizzlies are just starting to come out. Um, the mamas without cubs emerge around now, the males have already been out for a couple weeks and the mamas with cubs um, are just starting to come out now and in the next couple weeks. So really being aware of that, um, because for us, the mama grizzlies with cubs are the number one concern. I mean, black bears with cubs are also a big deal. We also have moose and elk. Um, You know, it's not the same thing as a water buffalo, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but they're, but you know, as far as North America goes, they're about as bad as it gets. Um, uh, Particularly moose can be really aggressive. Um, so being really aware of what sort of areas may attract them and what times of year they may be most protective or most aggressive. So again, for us, that's, you know, the springtime when we've got um, calf moose and bear cubs um, is a big deal. Luckily for us with both moose and bear, they tend to be in somewhat similar environments, particularly in the spring. They'll tend to be in the lowlands and kind of the wet areas. Um, so I know as soon as I'm anywhere near any of those sorts of areas, I'm picking up my long lines. We've got bells. I'm talking out loud. I'm yelling, hey, bear, yeah. <laughs> you know, all those sorts of things or hey, moose yeah. <laughs> um, and really making my presence known. Your approach may be different. I don't know much about like the specific behavior of like water buffalo or, you know, giraffes or hyenas or, you know, what the best approach is for those animals. Um, You know, for them, maybe it is actually just like avoiding those areas or maybe the best approach is actually to stay quiet and just move through. I have no idea because I just don't know that wildlife. Um, but, you know, and again, all of this is assuming that your dog is comfortable off, le- off yeah. leash and or is on the long line. But even if you've got a dog on a long line, really thinking about, you know, what areas are safer to go at certain times of year, um, certain times of day even, yeah. you know, are they most active around dusk where maybe we just want to be trying to go out in potentially maybe the middle of the day when the animals are likely to be dozing, which could be hard for your dog and you heat wise, but you can figure out other ways, you know, at least heat is a known entity that's not going to sneak up on you. Right, right. Um, the other, yeah. And thinking through all of those sorts of things. And go the ahead. other aspect that I often, um, coach my students through when, when hiking or otherwise spending time in, in, in areas where there are likely to be dangerous wildlife is 
constantly monitoring your dog's behavior because your dog Mm -hmm. is likely going to know where and what is out there before you will, um, based on their sensory perception that is much more advanced than ours. So, um, with, Mm -hmm. uh, Jamie, Jamie hasn't encountered a moose yet, but with Rue, my last, um, hiking dog, like I learned pretty quickly the behaviors that he started indicating, um, or using to indicate that there was a moose in the environment. And, um, after, you know, two times of having him kind of just start doing this frantic scanning and frantic sniffing in a way that wasn't mm-hmm. like anything that I had seen him do for any other type of wildlife and then coming around the corner and encountering encountering a moose on the trail after that I started paying attention and watching his behavior very mm-hmm. closely and when I would see that behavior happen um, it didn't happen in other contexts when it ha- would happen I would clip him on a leash again immediately and we'd come around the corner and we'd we'd be able to navigate and handle that encounter mm-hmm. with more preparedness so being really mindful especially as your dog is learning a young dog still learning what all the smells mm-hmm. and the things in their environment are telling them um, Uh, we want to be kind of being proactive and identifying changes in their behavior and, and then looking for triggers Mm -hmm. in the environment that might be eliciting those changes. And then we can better manage and train through that. Really good point. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's a really good point. I know I've, I've noticed with my dogs, like, especially because I have two now that I'm hiking, like, if I see both of them kind of do this, like hairpin turn and put their nose down at the same place or, stop dead and put their noses up in the same place that's uh it's a nice obvious indication when you've got multiple dogs um and definitely you know you're doing the right thing with really keeping an eye on it right now and making sure that you're preventing your dog from ever learning to chase any sort of wildlife because all it takes is chasing one guinea uh guinea fowl into you know that uh, may associate with some other sort of wildlife um for your dog to start thinking that that's a fun game as well um the other, uh, just kind of on the note of like hiking, maybe avoiding dusk or maybe avoiding, um, you know, certain times of year, thinking about uh, if you've got areas where you can go where um, it's really open uh, and you can really see animals from a ways away, especially because what we're most worried about are big herbivores. That may work. I, I, okay. I Again, I'm not super familiar with the geography around uh, Johannesburg. Mm-hmm. Um, but, that, but potentially there, there are some options and it might even just be going on some uglier, you know, two track dirt road sort of pl- sorts of places instead of like beautiful single track scenic trails that may be more wildlife friendly. Um, and, you know, it, it's going to depend. And treating those environments like um, great training opportunities. So if there's any mm-hmm. areas where you know, you anticipate, okay, I'm going to be able to see a um, wildlife activity across the meadow from me. I'm going to go, even though we're, we're a ways away, I'm going to go and be intentional about rewarding my dog for identifying that there's mm-hmm. something there and then coming back to me and using yeah. those. Um, and using cattle for that, yeah. you know, like your dog is likely to react quite similarly to a water buffalo as they do to cattle. Mm-hmm. Um or, you know, zebra or whatever it is. Um, so being... so it's nice that you'll be able to practice with those wildlife. And the last thing that I will say is, you know, depending on what your comfort level is and what your, what everything is, you know, thinking about whatever kind of standard best practices are for wildlife deterrence. You know, here in the U.S., I always have bear spray on me. Um, I have never had to use it. I hope I never have to. But it is also just kind of a nice, uh, like, backup thing to know I've got it here. Um, 
I know in general, in most African parks, it seems like firearms are more the way to go. And I don't know what the permitting may be like or anything like that. So um, obviously, I'm not suggesting doing anything that's illegal or dangerous or that you don't feel comfortable doing. Um, but, you know, again, thinking about ways that you can, um, you've got a little bit of backup just in case the very worst thing were to happen. Because I do know, um, you know, I've heard quite a few stories from coworkers um, and friends and family that have worked dogs in in Africa. And, you know, sometimes these, sometimes animals just kind of pop out of nowhere. Um, and hopefully you're just not, you're going to be able to avoid areas where that's likely. Um, but, you know, having some amount of backup uh, may be, may be helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I don't know. Um, I don't, I, cause I know uh, I was listening to the animal training Academy podcast like two years ago, I think it was a while ago. And someone said something about bear spray and the host is from New Zealand. And he was like, what the heck is that? <laughs> you know? um, which is just one of those things that we take for granted that we have here. Yeah. And that um, it's something you spray at the bear to be clear as well. Mm -hmm. I've, I've, I've heard horror stories of people in Yellowstone national park thinking you spray it on yourself oh, no. to deter the bear, <laughs> like, like bug spray. Oh, no. um, it is not that you spray it at the bear. If the bear is like about, out to attack yeah. you um and it's really nasty stuff do not spray it on yourself yeah. um so yeah i hope that's helpful um if let us know um over on patreon if if it is and um as always if you guys have follow-up questions on this topic just because we've already done this episode you can still go ahead and join patreon and ask questions about this if you feel like we didn't cover something or we're not clear about it i would be thrilled to circle back to it if you go ahead and ask us on patreon um, so Amber, do you have anything that you want to add? Um, I know you've got a bunch of webinars we need to make sure we mention for our, all of our listeners um, as we're signing out here. Yeah, so I have um, webinar recordings on a lot of these uh, adventure topics. So paddleboarding uh, with your dog webinar and uh, off-leash hiking with your dog webinar and a camping with your dog webinar that are two hours each plus um, of content <laughs> with videos and um, lots of brain dump of information on those topics uh, on, you know, what I do with my dogs and with my students. And those can be found um, on my website, which is summitdogtraining.com. And the webinars specifically are found under the summitdogtraining.com slash webinars. That will be awesome. Where and we'll make sure to link all that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming for on. Um, yeah, this was this was really lovely. I'm excited. It, it was fun to get to finish out with you know something about Nordic skiing and something about uh, water yes. buffalo. Um, <laughs> all right, I'm just I'm just really picking on water buffalo. They never said anything about right. them. Um, I just know they're terrifying. Yes. <laughs> So for our listeners, um, thank you so much for listening and for joining us. Make sure you subscribe and review the podcast. As we said, we love getting reviews and we don't get enough of them. You can support the podcast and get um, get answers uh, to all of your puppy raising questions if you join our Patreon at patreon.com slash pandemic puppy. I check it just about every day um, and we'll answer every single question that comes through. You can sign up for the puppy raising blueprint course over at journeydogtraining.com slash blueprint. And you can join the free pandemic puppy raising support group on Facebook for all sorts of free support. We will be back in your earbuds next week and we can't wait to hear more from you. Bye.